0: You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. All right, good morning, everyone. Special welcome to you if you're here for the first time this morning or visiting. My name's Jono, one of the pastors here. And also, big welcome to the newest member of our church, Levi Blowers, is here this morning. For the first time, three weeks old. I'm pretty sure he's the newest one. I know some of you are working on on some more members, but um, but, uh, we're all for that. All right, so... Um, If you are here for the first time this morning, um, we are at week four of what will, God willing, be a 22-week series taking us up to Christmas, working through the first half of the book of Exodus. Uh, So you can divide the book of Exodus many different ways. One way to do it is to uh, go from 1, chapter 1 to 18 as the first half of the book up to Mount Sinai and then 18 to 40. And so God willing, we'll do 1 to 18 this year and sometime next year we'll work our way through the rest of the book. Uh, I know that many of you have been away the last couple of weeks as we've sort of introduced this uh, series. So let me just bring you up to speed in a couple of minutes, all right? We learned uh, over the last three weeks that uh, God in the beginning created everything that there is. Everything apart from God was created by God, and he created it in perfect rhythm and harmony. Just out of the overflow of his self-sufficiency and his perfection, he, he, like an artist, just pours himself out onto the canvas of creation. He makes everything good, very good. That's the first two chapters of the Bible. Then by chapter 3, we see the tragedy of the pinnacle of God's creation, man and woman, made in his image, turning away from him. Turning away from him, wanting to be their own gods, wanting to to, to live out of their own self-sufficiency. And it's a great act of betrayal. It is a little bit like... Uh, A husband cheating on a wife or a a wife cheating on a husband. It has that kind of gravitas. These people have betrayed the one who has loved them from the beginning. And so we have the fall. And then rather than God uh, turning his back on his adulterous creation and just giving them over to the consequences of their sin there is consequences for their sin but right away straight away god makes a promise to them and he announces really the first gospel that we read in the scriptures this is chapter 3 of genesis verse 15 where he says to the serpent to the serpent representative of all that is evil and broken and chaotic in the world the great tempter he says to the serpent that Uh, Out of this woman's seed, right? out of of the the line of this man and this woman, there will come a person, a man, who will crush your head. He will overcome all that is broken and and wrong and sinful in the world. And so he makes this promise. And then if you're reading the Bible for the first time, from chapter 3, every page you're asking, where's the seed? Where's the seed? Right? God has made this promise. He's going to undo all that has gone wrong. And now we're asking, where, where is he? And we're going to keep asking that question up until the day that he arrives. That is, when God himself comes into human history in the person of Jesus. He is the one who will crush the head of Satan. He is the one who will redeem his people and there is a day coming where he will come again and restore all things to that state of perfection that God intended from the beginning. So that's the big sweep of the Bible. And we saw that, uh, that, that uh, the way that Exodus fits into that picture is that um, from the beginning, God not only promised that he would bring about someone who would crush the head of the serpent, but that this person would come through the line of a people that he would call his own people. He would call out a people to be his own and, and that through these people he would bring about his covenant promises. So he goes to a guy named Abram, just this obscure guy. There's nothing special about him. He's, he's 100 years old. He's, he's just a, a pagan guy living in uh, you know, 3,000 plus years ago, depending on how you want to date it. But, but nothing about him is special and yet God calls him out and says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to make you the one through whom all nations of the world will be blessed right up and out to Caroline Springs, right? It is going to be through you. And so he calls this man and his wife and he says, even though you're really old, I'm going to bring out of you this great nation. So in Genesis 12, this is where it happens and it's a pivotal chapter in the whole history of the universe. And uh, in verse one to two, he said, "The Lord had said to Abram, "Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land, I will show you, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. It's through this man, and the land that is going to be going, going to be given to him and his descendants." Through that vehicle, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And if you're wondering, well, did anything come of this guy? You know, did he have an impact on human history? If you look at it today, of the seven billion people in the world, four billion claim Abraham as their spiritual father. That's quite an impact, right? The great Abrahamic religions of the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all of us claim Abraham as our spiritual father. So, That's something, right? That's quite an impact, and it came out of complete obscurity. And the thing about this is, and and if you're again, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, you would be on tenderhooks. You would be, uh, you you would think this promise that God has made to bless people, to restore and redeem people, is a very tenuous thing because He has entrusted it to these people, and these people are morons, right? Like just just. From start to finish, there's nothing super special about them. They are actually, just like you and me, constantly tripping over themselves and failing and falling. We're going to see that in the life of Moses this morning. But it's God's faithfulness that protects and preserves his covenant. So God calls Abraham... He gives birth to a son, Isaac. He gives birth to a son, Jacob. And it's Jacob who enters into the land of Egypt, which is the setting for this part of the book that we're looking at this morning. And so he settles in there. Everything's fine. The king of Egypt welcomes them. He's like, yep, more the merrier. We're building a multicultural society here. Come in, enjoy, get to work, have fun. 400 years later, and things have changed very much. The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, 400 years after the people of Israel enter into the the nation of Egypt, does not welcome them. He does not like them. In fact, he wants to wipe them out. He sees that God has fulfilled his promise, that they've been fruitful, that they've multiplied, and now he feels threatened by them. He feels like they could maybe rise up and, and take over Maybe if there's a war, they'll join the side of their enemies. And so he comes up with a plan to kill them. First of all, he says, I'm going to kill them through working them to death. So he puts them to work. He makes them slaves. He gets them to build all of his public projects. But in spite of his oppression, the people of Israel, because of God's promise, continue to flourish. They just keep being more and more fruitful. Plan A fails. Plan B is simple genocide. He says every baby boy that's born to the Hebrews is to be killed. Like, it comes out and it gets killed. And so he embarks on this project of mass genocide, and even in that case, we see God... uh, we see God overcoming his evil designs first of all, through the Hebrew midwives who fear God more than they fear Hebrew, uh, uh, more than they fear Pharaoh, and so they disobey Him, they refuse to kill the babies, and then even when He makes an edict and makes it law that all Hebrew boys are to be killed, even then god 's plans and purposes are preserved, and we see this uh, namely in the case of Moses. We saw last week he was born, uh, a Hebrew boy. Parents devastated, right? Just Lord, please give us a girl. No, boy. Therefore, dead, right? By edict of the most powerful man in the universe at this point, he is. His head is on the chopping block. They hide him somehow. Hide a, a, a baby boy for three months. And then it all becomes too much. They can't hide him anymore. And so it says Moses' mum makes a, what we call a basket. It's actually the same word for ark, as in Noah's ark. She builds a little ark. And she puts him in the ark and sends him into the, the waters of death, the waters of the Nile. The same waters that have claimed countless baby boys at this point, according to the edict of the king, is the same, are the same waters that carry Moses in the ark to the very spot where the daughter of Pharaoh is bathing. She sees him. Unlike her father, she has compassion on him. She rescues him. Moses' sister, Miriam, sees this happen, has the courage to go up to Pharaoh's daughter who could rub her out just by looking at her and says, should I get someone to take care of this baby for you? Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, Miriam has the wits, the intelligence to go and get Moses' own mum. Moses' own mum becomes Moses' wet nurse and she gets paid for it by the daughter of Pharaoh. The irony in this story is rich and it keeps pointing us to the fact that God's promises and plans will prevail. They will prevail. Which brings us to our passage this morning. So if you've got a Bible, make sure you uh, have it open at Exodus chapter 2. And uh, Jimmy read for us verse 11 to 25. That's where we're going to camp out. But let me just go back one verse, gives us a little bit more context. All right, so at verse 10. <coughs> excuse me. Verse 10. When the child grew older, that's Moses, she, that's Moses' mum, took him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, "I drew him out of the water." This is now uh, uh, the point at which um, Moses is given over to Pharaoh's daughter as his own mother, his adoptive mother, and it it sort of introduces this tension for us in this part of the passage. uh, That uh, in the next verse, verse eleven, we we learn. from Stephen in Acts 7, that Moses is now 40 years old and he has to come to terms with his identity, who he is. And his name is sort of an analogy for the tension that he is experiencing when it comes to his identity, right? He's born a Hebrew, but he's raised an Egyptian. His name, Moses, can mean in Hebrew, um, it means drawn out, is a rough translation of the Hebrew Moses, drawn out. So, like, as he was drawn out of the river Nile by Pharaoh's daughter. But in Egypt, in Egyptian, it means um, born of the Nile. So, in both cases, it makes sense. And it kind of, I think it speaks of this, this cognitive dissonance that he's experiencing. Like, am I a Hebrew? Am I who I was born to be? Or am I a, an Egyptian who I've been raised to be? And we're going to see that Moses, in this passage has to make a decision. Is he one of God's people or is he one of Pharaoh's people? Does he belong to the promise or does he belong to the serpent? This is the, the sort of <clears throat> dichotomy that, we, that he's facing and that sort of expresses itself throughout the first five books of the Bible. Okay, And so what Stephen tells us in, in Acts 7 is that Moses makes a decision to be one of God's people. He makes a very deliberate decision, even though it's going to cost him. Even though it means leaving the riches of Pharaoh's household, he makes a decision to to be the man that he was born to be. Now, I I think in the Christian life, this very same tension is, is, is a big deal for us, all right? So we need to come to terms with, and we need to be settled in, ...what our identity is as, as Christians, as God's people. And this is the situation. I think that in, in today's day and age, more probably more than ever before... ...there are massive forces at work trying to claim your allegiance. Trying to define who you are. Massive forces. You've got all of the forces of marketing and advertising... billions of dollars being spent every day... ...trying to get you to be loyal to something other than Jesus trying to get you to define yourself by what you wear or the car you drive or the house you have or the job that you do, right? well, all of these things are vying for your allegiance. And then over and against that, you've got your own sense of inadequacy, your, your own um, struggle within yourself to define who you are. Am I simply the product of my family of origin, the way that my parents raised me to be? Or am I the product of the things that have gone wrong in my lifetime? Am I just the product of my grief and brokenness? God says that if you're a Christian here this morning, you are his child. That's fundamentally who you are. That is point one. Like John says in his epistle to the church, we are God's children. That's who we are. And the most beautiful doctrine, as far as I'm concerned, in Christianity is the doctrine of adoption. That is, God himself has adopted us. We were wayward orphans, wretches living in the slum, and he has come and adopted us and made us co-heirs with his own son. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. That's who we are fundamentally at the root. If you drill down as far as you can go, that is our identity. And yet we, my experience at least is that though I know that to be true, it is a constant struggle for me to claim that as my core identity. Am, am I alone? All these things vie for our allegiance and all of these things put massive pressure on us to define ourselves by something other than what Jesus has done for us. For example, when you meet someone at a party for the first time, the first question you ask them probably after what's your name is, what do you do? For us, so much of our identity is bound up in what we Do and God says, No, 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 your identity is fundamentally about what Jesus has done for you. So I think that we will struggle forever to be the people who God is calling us to be if we don't settle who we are in Christ. If we don't have a settled contentment that I am who I am by God's grace, that he has adopted me, that I'm his child, until we come to that settled conclusion, we will struggle to make all of life all about Jesus. That's a fact. And we see it here with Moses. Until he is settled in who he is, what his identity fundamentally is, he will struggle to be the man that God is is raising him up to be and really the next couple of chapters i think are god settling him in who he has made him to be my younger sister is adopted she we adopted her from south korea when she was 5 months old she's now about to turn 30 right and and she is as much a part of my family as my two other brothers are. She has all of the privileges and benefits. She is a co-heir with us in every sense of the word, right? When my dad drops dead, she will have everything that we are privy to. There is no difference legally, but more importantly, no difference relationally. I've never thought about her as anything but 100% my sister from start to finish, right? She has been adopted. It's a fact. That's who she is. Now, I imagine that there are times when she looks in the mirror and sees that she looks different to the rest of us, or when she, like she did when she was 18, goes back to Seoul and sees the place that she was, where she was an orphan, right? And, and, and it causes a little bit of tension in her as to what her identity is and who she really is. But the fundamental fact of the matter is that she is a smith. She is my sister. And so it is with us, friends, Irrespective of how you feel this morning, the fact of the matter is that you are God's child. And so Moses, born of the Nile, drawn out, born to a Hebrew woman, raised by an Egyptian, is coming to terms with who he is, what his identity is. And we pick it up in... Verse 11, I'll read a few verses for us. One day after Moses had grown up, as Stephen tells us he's 40 years old, he went out to where his own people, mark that, his own people were, and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked one, the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. Here's a couple of things I noticed from that passage, right? First of all, God has this incredible promise that he has made way back in Genesis 3 that he is going to redeem and restore his people and that this promise is going to be realized through this line of people that he calls his own and this magnificent cosmic right eternal promise is resting with a bunch of people who are so weak and flawed it's ridiculous You just read right throughout the Bible. I know when I was at Sunday school, we kept being told about these heroes of the Bible. When I got old enough to read the Bible for myself, I saw there aren't any heroes in this book, apart from one. All of these people are terribly disappointing. They're weak. They're flawed. And yet God is using them to bring about his cosmic plans and promises. It's amazing. And it's not just in the Bible, right? Throughout church history, I've got some heroes throughout church history. And every single one of them is a massive disappointment. We read about like, someone like Martin Luther in the 16th century being the catalyst for the great reformation of whom we are beneficiaries, saying magnificent things. And then you read what he says about the Jews, and it's horrific. Really? put you up on this pedestal, and now I see that you are a wretched sinner. Or his namesake, right? Martin Luther King. I remember hearing his great speech when I was, I can remember exactly where I was. I was 12 years old in year seven. It was the first thing i had ever seen on a CD-ROM, right? And it was Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream, and I just Repeat, repeat, repeat. I was blown away. And then I had sort of made him out to be this great hero of mine. And then a little later on, I found out about some of the stuff he got up to in his personal life. I was like, you, you're like your namesake. You're such a disappointment. And I'll tell you why it gives me comfort. Because I'm that guy. Because I know my heart. My heart. I know how weak I am. I know how flawed I am. And if God can work through Moses, the murderer, and through his descendants to David, the adulterous murderer, right through to right, like Peter, the great denier of Jesus, throughout church history, all like one after another, men and women who did great things and yet were greatly flawed. If God can bring about his plans and purposes through them, maybe there's a chance for me. I can't tell you how many times I think about the stuff that goes on in my blackened heart and it totally makes me doubt whether there's any point me talking to you right now. And there's my own sense of inadequacy and then there's Satan, the serpent, who comes in and intensifies those thoughts to the point where I wake up this morning, I don't want to get up here. There's too much doubt in me about whether it's worth your time and mine, given how flawed I am. And then I read the Bible, and I'm reassured. You know why? Because though God works through the agency of the people he's called to his service, it's God who fulfills his promises. He is faithful where we are faithless. Personal holiness is of absolutely paramount importance. But God's promises don't depend on your faithfulness or mine. Praise God for that. That's the first thing I noticed. Moses, this titanic figure in church and and biblical history he's a flawed man. The other thing I notice here is that I think this is an example of what happens when we act on our impulses, even good ones, rather than waiting on God's direction. So Moses here, he kills this guy, but let's be clear, he is motivated by a sense of justice. He sees Injustice happening, he sees a slave owner beating a slave, and inside of him he has this anger that's born out of a sense of injustice and so he acts on that when, when, when uh, Stephen speaks of this event in, in Acts chapter seven, he doesn't denounce what Moses does he doesn 't say, "Well, he did the wrong thing, but his heart was in it or like he, he, I think sees this as a a righteous action, but it's a misplaced one. God has not directed Moses in this way. He acts out of his own sense of wanting to, to get the job done. I think it's a cautionary tale for us. You'll notice that though Moses is doing what he believes is right, the outcome is all wrong. It's all bad. He kills this guy and the three major relationships he has in the world are all affected negatively. Right? God is displeased. Pharaoh now wants to kill him, and his own people reject him. See that in the next verses. They're not saying, yay, our Redeemer has arrived. They're saying, what, you're going to kill me too? Nothing good comes of this. I think it's a cautionary tale, and and let me just put in the context of our church. We are very prone, because I am very prone, to act impulsively. Even when we're motivated by what we think is right, we are prone to act impulsively, to get ahead of God, and to fail to consider what God might already be doing in this situation, and then following his lead. A very important man in my life recently said to me, he's is a, someone who prays for me, not a member of this church, but he's, he's a wise, older Reformed and charismatic guy who just who speaks truth. And he just said to me after a period of prayer, he stopped and he looked at me in the eye and he said, I think God is telling you that you need to get out of his way. Like, I just shared with him all of my plans for this church in the coming years, right? And I got all excited and I got all passionate and I said, you know, this is what we're going to do and here's, here's what I'm planning to do. And he just said, You need to get out of God's way. God is already doing so much in your church. And he wasn't saying you can't plan, you can't have passion, but he was saying you need to spend more time considering what God might want to do rather than just working out of your own agenda. And the next couple of chapters are going to be God shaping Moses to be more responsive to his leading rather than impulsive and working out of his own agenda. Let's read verse 15 to 17, all right? Pick it up. Make sure I'm, I'm, I'm right here, okay? Follow along with me. When Pharaoh heard of this, the murder, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue And watered their flock. This is this gives us a picture of who Moses is, right? Three times in four verses, Moses acts to defend people who are being oppressed. It was the slave being beaten by his master. It was the Hebrew being beaten up by the other Hebrew, and now it's seven daughters of Midian being pushed around by a bunch of shepherds. He's got a great sense of justice, and he's not afraid to act. I, I like people like this. Right, he's got some, he's got some stuff about him, and he's got a he's got a really good sense of right and wrong, and really in this way he shares attributes with God himself. God has a very strong sense of justice, and God has a great capacity for compassion. See this in verse 25, we'll get to it in a minute. God sees the plight of his people. He responds with compassion and mercy. That's who God is. And in that way, Moses shares a bit of who God is in his own makeup. My wife Renee and my daughter India, are the, they're Moses-like people. Very strong sense of justice and to the point where sometimes it irritates people uh, who are a little more laid back about these things. And, and, and people have said to me, maybe, maybe they should just calm down a little bit. And I, my response is, no, actually. In having this strong sense of justice and wanting things to be equitable, they share God's attributes. This is God, who God is. This is why God is so grieved by sin in the world. You can't read a few pages of the Bible without coming across... God's response to injustice and oppression. He hates it. And Moses hates it. And he doesn't just hate it and then get all, he gets all like passive-aggressive about it. No, he's assertive. He acts. And in this case, some shepherds come along, start pushing around these women, and he, he, he chases them off. He deals with them. We're going to see this play out. Throughout Moses' life, this sense of justice remains with him and it expresses itself in in both action against injustice and also compassion. Those two things are linked. It's hard to be compassionate if you don't have a sense of justice and injustice. And it's hard to act on your compassion unless... You have that sense. And he has it. He has it both in calling his people to account and also in having mercy on them through 40 years wandering through the wilderness and having them crying about the fact that they're not slaves anymore. Like that's enough to drive most of us to leave them in the desert. He perseveres with them and it's this sense of justice and compassion and mercy that keeps him going, I think. And he shares this with his God. I think it's one of the reasons that God uses him so powerfully. So he's met these girls. He's come to their rescue. He even goes and waters their flock, which is something that no man does. That's women's work, right? So he's also a bit of a new age, sensitive new age kind of guy, right? And then verse 18 and following says this. When the girls return to rule, by the way, um, that's Jethro, if, he's got two names. Like so many people in the Bible, it's confusing, but later on, chapter 3, we'll meet Jethro, same guy, all right? So, so when the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian, note that there's enough about Moses bound up in his identity as an Egyptian that that's how they identify him, all right? An Egyptian re- rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. It's crazy. And where is he? Raul asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? He's a keeper. What are you doing? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter a pora to Moses in marriage. The pora gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. That's a very powerful statement. Not just that he, it was a big enough deal for him to name his son that, but that sense that he has, that he is a foreigner. And I think he's, he's, this, this is profound for him. What he's saying here, I think, is that I am a foreigner no matter where I am because of what has happened to me in my life. Born a Hebrew, raised an Egyptian, no matter where I go, I am a foreigner. In Egypt, I was a foreigner living in Pharaoh's household. In Midian, I'm a foreigner living here as well because, and this is what I think he's getting at, my home is in the land that God had promised to Abraham. I am a child of God's covenant and his promise and I will not rest until I'm in the place that he has called me to be. He's got this great yearning for the land. It's going to drive him the rest of his life. And it's part of the great tragedy of his life that he doesn't get to enter the land. But that's his sense. Until I am there, I'm going to be a foreigner. And in this way, again, we as Christians know exactly how he feels. It's a great thing to be an Australian, right? Right? something that we can rejoice in. It's a great thing to be called to be part of this community in Caroline Springs or or in Melbourne. The beautiful things that we embrace about that, but we should be under no illusions. As Christians, we believe, as Hebrews chapter 13 says, that here we have no lasting city. We seek, we yearn for a city that is to come. We are, a, we are foreigners in a foreign land right now. And if ever it feels like, as a Christian, I just don't fit in here, there's a reason for that. And the point is that it's because you're a foreigner. It's because you're a sojourner. It's because you're passing through. You are on your way inexorably to the land that God has prepared for you, the new creation. You will not be able to rest until you are home. And so we share with Moses this sense. For him, it was a land that was promised in this life. For us, it's a land that is yet to come. And whenever you feel yourself becoming too comfortable in this life, in this world, you need to remind yourself of that truth. We were made for another world. We are foreigners. We are Gershom, foreigners in a foreign land. I'm running out of time. Let's just skip ahead to the last couple of verses, all right? Verse 23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So for more than 40 years now, the Israelites have been oppressed, slaves in a foreign land, given a death sentence, every boy that's born, and they're groaning naturally, right? They're groaning. They're crying out to God. They're calling out to him to remember his covenant with them. And the text says he does remember his covenant. Now, what you need to know is that that word remember is a technical term. It's a, it's a legal term. It's a covenantal term. It's not that he was busy doing something else and he's like, "Ah, oh, crap, the, the covenant thing, and got back to it, right? He, to remember his covenant means to act on it. He's always known it. And now he makes a decisive step to act on it. And this is the first time that God is explicitly mentioned in the book. It's his grand entrance onto the stage in the book of Exodus. And it's where he makes a decisive action to bring about his covenant promises. The point is that as God's people, as his people of promise, as his covenantal people, as people of the line of Abraham, whenever we're experiencing trouble of any kind, and I'm talking about from whether we're slaves, as Christians have been through the years, or just sick. Whenever we groan and cry out to God, God's response is always, to remember his covenant with us. He remembers. He acts. We can be confident that when we cry out to God, irrespective of our feelings or experience, he is not unmoved. He sees us and he knows us. That's a literal transition, of the literal translation of the Hebrew of that verse. He saw them and knew them. He's not unaware of the stuff that you're going through. He's not unaware of your pain. He sees you, he knows you, and he remembers his covenant with you. This has massive implications for us. If you've ever experienced God as being silent or distant, I've got to tell you this morning I was... Massively struggling with whether I could do this thing, like probably more than any other time in the last six years, which has included periods of deep depression. So, even through all of that, this morning was one of the paramount times in my experience where I was like, I do not know if I can do this. And my experience of crying out to God was what C.S. Lewis described as the door slamming and being locked and double locked. Silence, nothing. No experience of God saying, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength or anything like that, nothing. And what we need to know in that experience of silence, deafening silence, is that God sees us and he knows us, and he remembers his covenant with us every single time. Our experience may change, but God does not change. Are you getting that? Are you hearing me? Our experience will waver, but God does not change. He sees us, he knows us, he remembers his covenant with us. One of the ways that I think this has practical application for us is if you're married here this morning, right? If you're married here this morning, you have a covenant with your husband or your wife. It's a covenant in technical terms. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. In the same way that God has made covenant with us to be our redeemer, we have made covenant with our husband or our wife and that means something. Let me give you an illustration, right? My wife Renee struggles massively with migraines, debilitating migraines. Like, they are so overwhelming that she becomes delirious, right? It's as if she's massively drunk. She can't remember what she said five seconds ago. She says the same thing over and again. She is in so much pain that she can't... She can't do anything. She's incapacitated. And this happens frequently in the very middle of the night. So here's the situation. The wife who I'm in covenant with in the middle of the night calls out to me in groaning. And at that point, I have a decision to make. I can ignore her, shut the door and lock and double lock, or I can remember my covenant with her. And I can act. And what I need to do in that moment, and you can just extrapolate it out into any situation where your covenant partner needs you, what I need to do in that moment is to remember my covenant with her and act. I need to remember that I promised to love her in sickness and in health. I need to remember that I promised to love her like Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her. This is not just about us, depending on God's covenant promises. This exists between us in marriage, and I believe a similar covenant exists between us as God's people in his church. You didn't sign anything, but neither did you put your hand up to be included in God's covenant people. He just made it so. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, irrespective of whether you're single, married, or otherwise... You exist in covenant with God's people. And the bad news is, those people are these people. These annoying, smelly, irritating people who are sitting around you this morning, they're the people that God has called you into covenant with. They're the people. So that as you look around, you need to recognize that when these people who you are in covenant with call out to you, groaning, needing your help, you have a decision to make, and the decision that God is calling you to make is to see them, to know them, and to act. That's a big calling. That looks a whole lot different than nominal Christianity, which is turn up on Sunday, listen for a little bit, and then go home again. Right? Those two things aren't even in the same Universe as each other. What we want to do as a church is cultivate a covenantal culture. The kind of culture where this mission statement we bang on about, about being a community of people, helping people, make all of life all about Jesus, that that can actually happen. That thing doesn't happen if we show up on Sunday and then take off for the rest of the week. It does happen if we recognise that we are in covenant with one another and that we're called to bear one another's burdens to love one another in spite of the reality that we're all fallen and broken and weak and irritating and to know that this is Christ's body who he died to redeem covenant is the main theme through the book of Exodus it's the main theme theme through the book that is the bible and it should be the main theme that governs how we interact with one another in this place. Now, I can bang on about that for a whole lot longer. I can, I can just keep going. But none of it will produce anything like the kind of love that God wants us to have for one another, apart from God coming in himself and doing a work in each of our hearts. So that's what I'm going to pray for now. Maybe you'd like to pray with me. Father in heaven, I thank you that you are the great covenant keeper. You have never wavered in keeping your covenant with your people. And so we thank you and praise you that it's that covenant that put Jesus on the cross. It's the fulfillment of that covenant that means that we are forgiven and adopted into your household. It's on the basis of that covenant that we can say our identity is in Christ. And it's that covenant and your covenant-keeping love that will see the new creation come into being. And so we yearn, we groan for that restoration. We mourn our brokenness. We know, we know, Lord, how broken we are, how feeble, how weak, how sinful. And yet you love us. And yet you pursue us. And so we pray now, Holy Spirit, please come and minister to us. Please come into each of our hearts and change us. We pray that you would be putting to death selfish ambition, putting to death that which makes us hate one another and reject one another. That you would be replacing that with a spirit of love and mercy, justice and compassion that we would be eager to serve one another in Jesus' name. Amen.